Greetings, this is Kurt. Welcome to the first part of Book One. Please make yourself comfortable as we ignite the performances. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments or questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. If you care to help in keeping these complex productions coming, please buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com slash the Harkin Theater. Unlike my wife's favorite morning beverage, that's spelled ko-fi.com slash the Harkin Theater. Refer to episode descriptions for the exact address, our email, and our secure website, theharkintheater.com. And thank you for listening. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Prelude The Hostage Prince. Chapter 2 It was after midnight. A deep silence shrouded the campus of the School of the Arts as a fiery meteor appeared in the depths of the stars over the city and fell towards the field on the northern boundary of the school grounds. As it came near, the meteor slowed dramatically and, with the delicacy of a summer's firefly, lighted upon the expanse of short grass and dandelion, intensified for an instant then winked out. Bomalai cantered across the field, the pounding of his hooves falling dead in the stillness. Shaken by the unexpected trek through the ethers, his rider still gripped his mane tightly with one hand, the fingers of her other hand clenched around the tarnished silver medallion. Marie took the reins and slowed her steed. The fresh air filling her lungs seemed like a long-lost luxury. Between gateways, there had been no wind, no feeling of actual motion, and no sensation of passing time, yet the bizarre interval had also seemed an eternity. As opposed to the cool lightness of morning where she had last been, it was night here. Wherever here is, that's a strange smell in the air, and it seems heavier somehow. Tugging gently on the reins, she stopped and dismounted allowing Bomalai to blow, then pulled him along as she went to a small copse of trees on the field's border and sniffed the night with concern. As she tethered him to a low-hanging branch, she puzzled over the situation. This place doesn't look or feel at all familiar, which I suppose is as it should be. Even the constellations overhead are foreign. Rothson had been deliberately vague about exactly where she was to end up. For my safety, he said. So this didn't disturb her very much. 
She wrinkled her nose in distaste. The faint stink permeating the air is of burning waste and sour pitch. She drew her cloak about her as if to ward off the strange atmosphere. All seemed dead, motionless, while somewhere not too far away was a low drone that, to her ears, sounded vaguely like a combination of the roar of ocean waves and packs of wild dogs howling as they pelted the land during a nocturnal prowl. Even the brightness of the small white stars atop branchless poles burned cold and unfeeling like the stars overhead. If they were meant to be lights, they were not like the warm, friendly glow of a fire or lantern. And much too bright. Marie shuddered as fingers of doubt crept over her like an encroaching illness. Risky. Having to find a single being in a place born of a mage's dream. And yet here she stood, obviously in another place. Supposedly the home of a demigod. Her mind wanted to argue the reality of the land surrounding her, but it found difficulty. If she had not felt the brisk sting of dawn air, she would not have believed she was awake. The sight of her homeland bending, warping, and falling away from her as she had breached the gateway would have convinced her she was dreaming, had it not been for the toss and buck of Bomali beneath her at full gallop. And now I am here. The sudden switch from the dawning suns of her home to the deep night of this place with the coldness of its many lights was testimony enough to the fact of this being very different. Her doubts waned in the shadow of a new worry. Will Rothson's magic enchantment take me back home? Now she understood the enchanter's enigmatic smile at her unspoken doubts, and she realized a new respect kindling within her for the powers of the mystics. He knew this was going to work, of course. It had been only her own ignorance that had made her all but laugh at his sincerity. Remembering his warning about time and the gateway, she looked to the other end of the field, half expecting to see a circle of stones or something similar, but saw only dandelions, hundreds of them, Gossamer puffballs hovered just above the ground like a thin cloud. In their midst was a circle of toadstools, its radius unusually large. Just as she was starting to panic at the lack of standing stones, she remembered a story from her childhood about the rings of mushrooms being called fairy circles. If not for her fantastic trip between worlds, she would never have thought twice about such a thing. But now this fairy circle is probably the gateway home. She was tempted to speak the word again, if only for the comfort of seeing the mist appear, a reassurance that she could return home. But she wasn't sure if she was allowed unlimited use of the magic. At least that's how the children's stories went, that I can remember. As she caressed the edges of the medallion, the image of Rothson's earnestness came back. Glancing at the talisman in her hand, she decided that at this point there was no reason not to trust him. As if I have any choice at this point. She glanced back to see Bomali's ears pricked and nostrils flared as he too sniffed the strange air. 
Faint wisps of steam rose from the sweaty froth on his coat as she reached out to pat him reassuringly. Out of habit, she surveyed their immediate surroundings just to be sure no one else was about. Even though she had no inkling of where she was... That doesn't mean there aren't grands here, too. The sooner we return, the better for the both of us. But first, there was the urgent task at hand. Touching the medallion again, she recalled Rothson's careful instructions on its use and tried her best to quiet her agitated thoughts and concentrate. Where am I? Where do I find him? With a sense of relief, she felt an intuitive nudge, almost like warmth from the talisman, reassuring her that things, though extraordinary, were as they should be. At the same time, she was directed toward a cluster of tall, squarish buildings standing below the field. Having never before experienced such sensation from an inanimate object, she stared at the artifact and wondered if it was Rothson somehow communicating to her through it. After everything that had happened so far, she was ready to believe anything was possible. Bomalai brushed alongside, bringing Marie out of her momentary trance. You're right, Bomalai. She rubbed her hand along his neck. Enough of my dringling. We can't stay here long. With her other hand, she experimented and played her fingers along the arcane engravings of the medallion. Again, a silent urge directing her toward the structures. That must be Rothstein. Feeling a little less scared with his mystic attention upon her, she patted her gray once more, then hurried down into the campus. In Dormitory C, second floor, room 206, drama student Paul Bach slumbered peacefully, just as oblivious to the strange visitor as the rest of the sleeping campus. Deep night's quiet was broken momentarily. over reluctantly, lifted a weary eyelid, and sourly noted the time. Just past three o'clock. Squinting at nothing in particular in the dark, he waited for another knock, silently hoping whoever it was would go away. Nocturnal visitors were not the norm for him, though several of his dorm buddies were wont to throw the odd late-night party now and again. However, the quiet of the building precluded that possibility. Just as he was shutting his eyes for a return to blissful sleep. Go away. Don't want any. Silence shrouded the room again, and he shut his eyes with the hope that whoever it was had figured out he wasn't going to get up. After only a few moments came more knocking, each rap like an invisible bullet ricocheting off the walls. Deciding he'd better answer before half the dorm was awakened, he surrendered the comfort of the warm covers for the cold floor and stumbled across the room while rubbing his hands over his face. 
God damned insomniac. Having escaped an abusive mother and the gangs of his low-income neighborhood, Paul had made college and his imminent career his new and only home. After working very hard in high school to earn a place in the university's prestigious theater conservatory, he had resolved never to go back to the battlefield that was his childhood. The college was his fortress against the outside world and his ten-foot square dormitory room his private quarter. He guarded his domain seriously, having no patience with those who might invade his valuable time and limited space. He groped his way to the door latch, then blinked into the dim wash of illumination from the fluorescent nightlight down the hall. What is it? Forgive this intrusion, Lord, but we need thy help. Her greeting, the urgency in her voice, and her appearance froze all immediate retorts in his throat. Rubbing and blinking the blur out of his eyes again, he started at the floor and worked his way up. The tops of her scarred leather boots were stuffed with snug, worn breeches of dark, heavy cloth. Her thin waist was wrapped with a wide leather belt holding a sheathed dagger, empty rings for what purpose he couldn't guess, and a couple of suede pouches. Her high-collared, long-sleeved, laced bodice of heavy cloth dyed pale yellow more than adequately concealed her modest endowments, yet hinted at her curvaceous figure. The hall light reflected off a medallion hanging on a heavy chain around her neck. The leather gloves on her hands had worn patches along the knuckles and finger pads, obviously well used. Enveloping all was a long, heavy-hooded brown cloak that lightly touched the floor. The only bare skin showing was her face, which he immediately regarded as... Hmm, pretty, in an unrefined way. Her hair was long, dark, and braided. Meeting her round eyes with his, he dredged up a running gag from some comedies he had been rehearsing. You're not from around here, are you? The innocent shake of her head would have made him laugh with its sincerity if he hadn't been so grumpy. And you're either extremely late or extremely early for the Shakespeare Festival. Even so, costumes were not allowed out of the theaters, except for the occasional promotions of the school's professional quality productions. She cocked her head slightly and frowned as she took up the medallion in her gloved fingers to stroke its edges. Thou art he, are thee not? He? Paul was momentarily distracted by her caressing the jewelry. Her eyes wandered for an instant as she seemed to listen to something unheard, then allowed the medallion to hang from its chain again, and answered herself. Yes, thou art the one. The one for what? A late-night joke? He leaned his head out to see if anyone else might be watching the exchange, then pondered the calendar, figuring... Halloween is still a few weeks away. And this shouldn't be a fraternity prank or hazing, or whatever they called it. Because this conservatory division of the university has no Greek societies, nor do the frats of the university regular invade the School of the Arts. Not only was there no sport in it, such action violated serious regulations dictated by the college community due to the rigorous schedule imposed on all performing arts students. Our prince is to be executed by the Grimms unless we can rescue him. She cocked her head at him with curiosity. Art thou not aware of our plight, Lord? Paul discovered her studying his appearance more closely than made him comfortable. 
plight? Yeah, sure. He reached a hand back to close the door in her face. Look, I don't know what's up, but you're either talking to the wrong guy or you're batshit crazy. And I'm going back to bed, so... Catching her rudeness with staring at him... I didn't know demigods had dark skin. She looked back to his dark eyes. Forgive me, Lord. Perhaps I make little sense, but I have only a short time. Shorter than you think, sister. How much shorter? With at least one of the Bard's plays always being produced on campus at any given time, he could banter with medieval characters whenever he wished. But not now. Stopping just short of shoving the door shut to end the conversation, a curious part of his mind was pointing out inconsistencies with his assumptions. Because she was very close to him, as opposed to being brightly illuminated on stage, it was clear that her clothing was of a genuine quality, far beyond anything the costumers on campus produced. Permeating it, and her, was an unexpected aura of authenticity. Almost as if she has stepped out of the past. Her expression was one of wide-eyed distress and desperate hope, and her accent, untraceable to his ear, seemed natural, reminding him of when he had practiced an English accent for a play, then met someone from England whose genuine dialect easily outshone his well-rehearsed affectation. Part of him guessing he was going to hate himself for it, he reached for his bathrobe hanging behind the door. He was dressed only in his boxer shorts. Okay, sweetheart, what are you here for? She blinked with relief. The Lord. He frowned as he thought about what she'd said a few moments ago. Something about a prince and an execution. Not some sort of gang activity. Especially not in a college where people had far better things to do. And certainly not a gang sporting medieval costumes. Again, the authentic aura of her appearance and archaic choice of words shone through these shadows of doubt. And it was highly unlikely that she was spun out on drugs. And why me, of all doors and rooms and buildings and students? Is there no one else you can go to? A boyfriend or roommate? Perplexed, she stared at him for a moment. Thou art he whom Rothson sent me to find. I know of no one else. Rothson was not a name he knew. But at least I got her to admit someone sent her. And if nothing else, being selected for whatever this is, and being called Lord, makes me feel special somehow. Seeing her continued distress and hopefulness in him, he finally said, Look, I don't know what gag this is, but you're obviously in some sort of, of trouble. Do you want some help? Besides, he was awake now, and not likely to get back to sleep for an hour at least. Oh yes, Lord, yes. She dropped to one knee, her head bowed with gratitude and respect. Finally, this demigod was perceiving her needs and her mission. Okay, what's the best way I can help you? She lifted her head to gaze at him adoringly. Come back with me to see Rothson. He nodded with a knowing smile. Here's the gist of the gag. Her trick is to get me to come meet this very clever perpetrator. Well, I'm in it this far, so I might as well see what's up. Regardless, he still nurtured concern for any female student out late and alone and decided to be cautious more for her sake than his own. 
Won't you come in for a moment while I grab some clothes? Having her wait outside seemed rude. Meanwhile, Marie decided she could afford a few moments of her limited time. After all, this is a demigod we are entreating for help. And marched purposefully into the room. Paul shut the door, plunging the room in darkness, then shuffled his way around her and toward the lamp on his bedside table. He didn't like to blind himself with the brightness of the overhead cluster. Watch your eyes. Marie jumped, startled by the sudden glare that burst from beside the bed, making her shut her eyes. Sorry about the sloppy state of my room. Oh, excuse me, I did warn you. Paul removed his hand from within the lampshade as he admired her outfit and her appearance with more appreciation, now that there was enough light to see her clearly. Gradually, Marie's eyes adjusted, and she found her attention drawn to the source of the blazing, unwavering light. But this one is different. Warm, yellow, and comfortable. He didn't use a flint to spark it. She had seen the small colored balls of witch light that followed mages at night. But this is so much brighter. Perfectly illuminated above it, she saw what appeared to be a large, incredibly intricate tapestry or painting of a bird of prey captured in the mid-stroke of its wings as it leapt from a rock jutting upward from the bottom of the frame. Indeed, it looked so perfect that it might have sprung out at her. Of course, it's only fitting that the demigod Prince of Light possess a rendering of his altar form. Paul saw her appreciation of his poster. You like it? I had that enlarged from a photo I took. Though she didn't comprehend what he said, she decided she was indeed in the correct place, a being with strange skin and images of himself. A demigod who conjures light. She wanted to ask about all of it, but such curiosity would take away the few precious moments she had. I have an affinity with all raptors, but especially with golden eagles. Paul smiled to himself with contentment as he tugged on a pair of wrinkled jeans, then noticed how she kept staring at his body. He gave himself a cursory inspection, thinking he was cut, or there was an exposed part of his privates, but saw nothing out of the ordinary. Why do you keep looking at me like that? Ashamed of her impoliteness, Marie lowered her eyes again. Forgive me, Lord, but thy skin. My skin? Tis... She lifted her gaze to meet his. Forgive me my ignorance of thine appearance. Such was not told to me. She wanted to ask if he was burned, but feared the question would be viewed as impertinent. Perhaps conjuring the heavenly fires like he does somehow burns him. Wincing at her with suspicion, Paul wondered if she harbored some sort of racial bigotry, but her innocent expression belied this notion. He was accustomed to friendly jibes from his classmates about his almond-shaped eyes to the point where he had to explain that his mother wasn't Polynesian and that any further comments could be taken up with his unknown father. Regardless, she seemed taken with his entire appearance as if she had never seen a black man before. This gagger game is taking some strange turns already. She's one of those actresses who gets so wrapped up in her part that she's crazy. He'd worked with a few of those, and while they were a delight to perform with... Offstage, they are loonies. Why don't you tell me why I've got to go meet Rothson? He grabbed a shirt. 
Thou art remembered in our legends of the ancient days for favors thou granted to us. Hold on a second. Do you have to keep saying thou and thee and such? It makes it really hard to keep track of what you're telling me. Tis only formal speech as I was told to address you, Lord. If it offends... No, it doesn't offend me. It bores me. Please talk like a regular person. If anyone asks, I'll... I'll tell them you did it right. Taken aback with his straightforwardness, she nodded and blinked her understanding. The Grams have taken our prince hostage and will kill him before we can provide rescue if he still lives. If the king dies without his heir at his side, we will be without a protector of the realm. The kingdom will be in serious jeopardy. Many will die. We request your intervention in finding our prince. Her message completed. She clasped her gloved hands before her and watched his expression as she waited anxiously for his response. Paul had stopped amidst putting on his shirt and was staring at her with ominous eyes. Who sent you? Master Enchanter Rothson devised the means for my journey here, Lord. She was pleased that he would be interested. Paul stopped buttoning his shirt. All right, wait a minute. Hold the phone. Enchanter. Knowing the pranks his theater friends could do, he smiled knowingly again. This is one hell of a game you guys are running. Marie stopped fidgeting in place and stared in disbelief at his question and his off-handed laxity, then decided it was her turn to be straightforward. Game? Game? The Grams have taken our prince, and it was no game getting here to find you. She allowed some of her fear and frustration to leak out. I have told you all I can. Paul held up his palms again, acquiescing to her short temper. Okay, okay. Just tell me why you chose me. Then gestured toward himself. Who am I to you? You are the Prince of Light. Incredulous, Paul's eyes widened. Again, that aura of authenticity shining through. She had made that statement in the confident way someone might have said, the sky is blue. Still wanting to resist this fantasy she was acting out. So... I am the Prince of Light, eh? And just what am I supposed to do? Her patience was at an end. This is ridiculous. I expected some sort of difficulty in communicating our need to a demigod with more important matters to attend to, but not such frivolity. Perhaps for an immortal our desperate need is trivial, but this does not grant you the right to scorn us. She spun about and went to the door. I have no time to explain anything more. I won't risk everything Rothson's done playing word games with an eccentric demigod. If you won't come, then say so now, and I shall return alone. And the prince will surely die now. Tears welled amidst her anger and frustration. When she couldn't find a latch on the door, she tried pushing down on the knob, having never seen one before. This wasn't a levered latch like the one on the outside door she had first encountered. That one had been familiar in appearance and function. When pushing didn't work, she kicked the door hard, making it rattle on the frame. A curse on this portal. How do I get out? Her sudden wrath frightened him a little, and he wondered just how passionate she truly was about this gag. Wait, please, wait a second. I'll, I'll come with you. 
No matter how crazy this whole thing seemed, Prudence dictated he should accompany her to wherever she was going. She spun around with hopeful eyes, her anger dissipating. Truly? Yeah, sure. He cast about for his shoes and socks. She dropped gratefully to one knee again and dried her eyes with the backs of her gloves. Perhaps this whole conversation has been a test of some sort. Yes, that's what it is. Surely the superior beings wouldn't offer their intervention just to anyone. Though she would have thought the predicament their prince was in would have invoked immediate concern, he being the last of the line of divinely anointed kings. Thanks be to ye, Lord. But please hurry. Sure thing. Toss me that shoe, will ya? She looked around, saw something resembling a cloth shoe with stripes and white laces, picked it up, felt its lightness in her hand, and gave it to him. Such garb was truly magnificent, especially in how it seemed to simply slip on his foot like a second skin. As Paul fussed with the laces, Marie turned and fiddled with the doorknob, discovering that twisting it released the latch. Swinging the door wide, she stormed out with a swirl of her cloak. Hurry, Lord, before the gateway closes. The what? Paul hopped out on one foot while tugging on his other shoe. When Marie came out of the dormitory with Paul in her wake, she stopped and looked around. This otherworld night is different from before. After a moment, she realized it was silence where before there had been noise. Not even the friendly chirp of crickets could be detected. The hush was ominous, making chills run down her spine. <sighs> Someone was watching. Others were coming. She grabbed Paul's arm tightly and headed quickly for the field. If there was trouble, she hoped his divine powers would protect her. Paul, meanwhile, had decided to humor her for as long as was necessary to see the gag through, and he allowed her to pull him along with her unexplained urgency. As they climbed the embankment, he noted with a shiver the death-like quiet blanketing the area. Even the distant drone of the interstate highway was unusually silent. It was as if time had stopped. Reaching the north field, he stared in amazement. Tethered to a tree was a saddled gray horse, nodding its head nervously at sight of Marie. Just as Paul opened his mouth to speak, three fireballs burning blood red appeared in the sky and plummeted toward the field. He clapped his hands to his ears against the shriek, and Marie doubled over as if she had been punched in the gut. Following the trail of Marie and Bomalai, their own light illuminating the field with a glow of foxfire, three figures on horseback lighted upon the ground, their white steeds' hooves crushing dandelions as they slowed from their gallop through the ethers between universes. They spotted the lone horse on the opposite end of the field, and just beyond it, the woman they sought. She was in the company of a man from this lower plains world. Caring nothing about Marie's quest or the royal heir's predicament on the sun world of Fayek, the specter's only concern was reversing events that served to unbalance the delicate equilibrium of the cosmos. If that meant death to a puny, defiant human, so be it. 
creatures only of action and dark power, and not of thought or speculation, the three specters converged on her, perceiving her as nothing but a renegade who traversed between worlds in violation of universal law. Squeezing her eyes shut against the stab of agony, Marie wondered if she would black out. Then, like a muscle cramp easing, the pain faded. Straightening herself slowly, she hugged her arms protectively around her middle and stared with dread at the approaching horsemen. Her first thought was that these were entities belonging to the demigod's realm, but an intuitive chill said otherwise. The next thing she knew, she and Bomalai were surrounded by the intruders. Her steed tried to sidestep toward her, his neck straining against the tether. They were robed in bone-white cloaks, their hoods concealing their faces, or lack thereof. Beneath mantles of beaten leather, black straps crisscrossed to their chests and wrapped their waists, from which hung evil-looking curved swords in scabbards. Their outlines suggested broad-chested muscular warriors. Their horses were pale white with dark red eyes that seemed to smolder in their sockets. Marie managed to look away for a second, curious as to what the demigod was doing. She was astonished to see him unmoving, frozen in mid-step, his palms pressed against his ears, his eyes locked on the night sky beyond where the red fireballs had first appeared. Whoever they are, they hold power over the demigods. Suddenly she felt very alone. As the faceless hood focused on her, an unpleasant feeling of spiders under her skin made her blood run cold. This violation of balance will be terminated. Who are you? You will have no memory of this event. It raised a white-clad arm and pointed not a hand, but a blood-red talon with four claws at Bomalai. Return now with us. Are these demons? Return where? To your home world. Its arm remained pointing at her saddle. You will have no memory of this event. No memory? How could that be done? By whose authority do you command me? We are specters serving the two-headed god. Goosebumps rose on her skin. The Dark One. She had no concept of specters or their specific purpose, but she knew of the two-headed god, his malevolent ways, and his demons. Have I endangered the Prince of Light? What of the demigod? The lead specter turned its hood toward Paul. He is not for you, this otherworlder. He will have no memory of this event. So they do hold power here. Marie gripped her fingers around Rothson's medallion. But I came here to save my prince. The talon pointed directly at her. You came in violation of universal law. Return now by our power or face obliteration. She stepped back beside the demigod. I will return with him, but not by your power. Then you have chosen to end your life, renegade. She moved back out of reflex at first, then stood her ground. Ralston! She hoped the Master Enchanter could hear her thoughts. 
The medallion blazed forth suddenly with an almost blinding white light. Illuminated in sharp contrast of white and shadow, all three specters recoiled as their pale horses flinched and moved back a step. At the same time, Marie heard her demigod move beside her as the mystical restraints on him were abruptly lifted. <gasps> what? Is the initiator that interferes? The deep fury underneath its question made her cringe, but she did not answer and managed to keep her eyes locked on the faceless hood. She found it curious how even the radiant fire of the medallion couldn't penetrate the shadows to reveal a countenance within the specter's hood. If there is one... What the hell? Paul blinked with confusion at the faceless trio. A dream, and a bad one at that. How else could these three ghostly apparitions have appeared so suddenly? And yet all his senses reported otherwise. Wondering if he might or might not wake up and thus escape this scene, he figured he should do more than simply stand and stare. Though running away was his first instinct, morbid curiosity kept his feet still. Also, these men were mounted and no doubt adept at handling their steeds. If not a dream, he was impressed with the performance, but as with the girl, these pale-robed men radiated a dark aura of authenticity. Having faced off gang members in his youth, he could sense when someone was capable of committing murder. He remained quiet, trying to be as invisible as possible amidst the dangerous energy reverberating around him. Caught up in the sensation of wielding power over the entities... Dark spirits, be gone! To her disappointment, nothing happened, the specters remaining in place. You are but a speck! Its curved blade glinted in the supernatural glow of the medallion. You have not the power to command agents of the two-headed god. Seeing that they hovered just beyond the area of light without coming any closer, Marie guessed she was being afforded only minimal and not absolute protection. We're leaving, Lord. She went to Bomalai and untied him from the tree branch. The specters watched silently. As she shakily placed a boot in a stirrup, she turned to look at the demigod. Will you make the journey on your own, or did you care to ride with me? Wide-eyed as a hunted rabbit, Paul managed a nod. I'll, I'll come with you. Gone were any thoughts of leaving her alone and returning to bed. Who are the guys with the scimitars? Enemies. She lifted herself into the saddle, then offered a hand to guide him up. Having rarely mounted a horse before, Paul fumbled with the stirrups and, after a moment of careful deliberation, managed to get himself astride the horse behind her. I knew all those westerns I watched when I was a kid would be good for something. His thoughts struggled between wanting to know exactly what all this truly was and hoping it was an elaborate performance of some kind that would soon end. The specters attempted to make a tight ring around them, but were unable to get close within the ragged circle of light. This is a violation! The leader reined its steed before Bomalai, blocking his way. Your sorcery will be halted! Raising an arm toward Marie, it tugged at the air with a grisly talon. To her alarm, the blaze of light from the medallion faltered, 
It did not go out entirely, but the area of light was smaller, allowing the specters to move in closer. The other two wheeled their steeds about to parallel Bomalai, yet still out of reach. She gripped the reins tightly and glared angrily into the hood that stared back. Get out of my way! Relinquish the otherworlder and return with us. It reached out its talon to again tug at the air. The other two poised their blades to cut across her torso as their horses tried to sidestep closer. Hold on tight. Paul found himself alternately impressed with Marie's equestrian skill and completely baffled by the goings-on. She reined Bomalai toward the far end of the field. Specters of the Dark One! They come to prevent our return! Two of the three specters moved parallel in the darkness. Bomalai! Her warhorse increased his speed despite the extra passenger and pitched himself into a run of pure terror. Hanging on tightly to her waist, Paul managed to glance around and see one pursuer alongside and moving closer, the other giving chase at the rear. A talon reached over to snatch Bomalai's reins. The picture of those swords and claws ripping into him or Marie made him shudder, and he pressed his face into the hood of her cloak before him. I don't think I want to be here. Marie saw the fairy circle ahead. Red gas out! The medallion flying from her neck flashed again, blinding Paul. A pillar of mist appeared, and her grave broke into it. The space around them flooded with light, and the field fell away beneath them. Seeing the substance of his world warp and crumple away, Paul felt suddenly very dizzy, and he hugged close to Marie's back as a bitterly cold wind pierced his clothes, chilled his flesh. In a darkened field falling farther away, three nameless creatures reined their steeds to a halt and watched in silent fury as a fiery meteor flew into the stars and beyond. Of Doom, Part 1, Prelude, The Hostage Prince. The sound plays were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices for Prelude are performed by Geraldine Cummings, Kevin Norris, and H, the Great and Powerful. The novel and sequels of the Quintology are available through Amazon.com or on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price with additional bonuses from the author by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Soral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theatre at Yahoo.com. 
Sound effects and original foley provided by Cusp Studios and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe. Thank <laughs> you.